ready to wake up, you're going to wake up. And if you're not ready, you're going to stay pretending that you're just a little, poor little me. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty. In the 17th chapter of St. Luke, it is written, the kingdom of God is within man, not one man, nor a group of men, but in all men, in you, you the people have the power. The world is like a ride at an amusement park, and when you choose to go on it, you think it's real, because that's how powerful our minds are. Everybody is I. You all know you are you. And wheresoever beings exist throughout all galaxies, it doesn't make any difference. You are all of them. And when they come into being, that's you coming into being. Yo, 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 people. How is it going? So anyway, this week on the Ascend podcast, I met up with a guy called Professor Steve Ferber and he's a professor of computer engineering at the University of Manchester. And as I mentioned last week, he is the guy who is building a full-scale computer model of the human brain. Really interesting stuff. And as you know, machines with vast intelligence, vast artificial intelligence, are a constant theme in popular culture. Hollywood films like Ex Machina and TV shows like Westworld, they all feature this common thread of robots outsmarting humans but what's really interesting about this podcast and as you will hear Steve has a a very different point of view and he actually believes in fact there's a lot the human brain can teach its electronic counterpart and he says that a robotic brain that matches our own is a long way off which is really interesting and Professor Steve Ferber's main passion for building the brain is part was partly inspired by the fact that computers, despite their huge advances, are still often outclassed by the humble human equivalent, which I think is really interesting. So I'm really looking forward to sharing this podcast with you. And just before we jump with this one, I want to say, please, if you can, check out our Patreon page and support the podcast through that. It really means a lot to us. In any amount, even $2, the price of a cup of coffee each month will be a huge help and help us to keep doing what we're doing. We also have a one-off donation option, which a few of you and we're really grateful for have been every now and again slipping a bit of money in there it really means a lot helps us to keep doing what we're doing so anyway enjoy this podcast with steve ferber So anyway, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. It really is a pleasure to sit down with you. And um, when I first came across your work, and uh, one of my close friends actually sent us across uh, a recent study where you were talking about how you were going to be designing a, a computer that mimics a human brain. What actually made you decide to do that? The history of the project goes back quite a long time. So it, it's been you know, over 20 years in conception. And uh, I've been designing conventional computers since the sort of late 1970s. I worked at Acorn in the 1980s uh, building machines such as the BBC Micro and then the ARM processor. And then uh, 20 years later, um, computers have got an awful lot faster, but they still couldn't mm. begin to do things that, that we humans find relatively easy, such as you know recognising faces. I mean, you can program computers to do that, but it's still... It's still a pretty tricky problem to do. So I started thinking about you know, what's the difference between 
how conventional computers work and 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 how we work, how our brains work, and and, and that led me to thinking in particular directions. So so that's the origins, um, and and these ideas started crystallizing in the late 1990s. Um, I got some funding to, to do a bit of work into looking at associative memories, um, which are, are memories that kind of you know, recognize similarities or, or, or recognize things they've seen before rather than conventional computer memories, just yeah. a bit like a lot of a lot of mm. pigeonholes, you know, each with a number and you keep thinking of pigeonhole here, you can search. And, and sound computers are really quite poor at searching. So, so the, Sorry about that. I, saw, I was just thinking that. So the magnitude of the whole task is... Could it be like, like very daunting for when you actually first anticipate undertaking something like this? Well, it, it, it's clear if you look at, at what people have done in building uh, brain-like machines that that scale is a big deal, right? Mm-hmm. That uh, you know the human brain has uh, just under a hundred billion neurons and uh, something like ten to the fifteen—that's a thousand million million connections. Wow! Um, so if you're going to try and build a machine to do even a small part of this, it's going to be a big machine. So, oh yes. So scalability is fundamental. So, so at the outset, we thought about this and we set ourselves the goal of: <clears throat> can we build a million mobile phone processors into a machine, and 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 connect these in ways that allows them to support realistic models of the brain? Now, even with a million processors. And some very simplifying assumptions. It's clear you you don't really get even past one percent of the scale of the human brain. Yeah. Yeah. But it's it's like the whole replicating of the like individuals ourselves, like the three of us. We have, on average, seventy thousand individualized thoughts per day, not related to anything around the environment. So that's what that's something I've heard. Anyway, I don't know if you can clarify a bit into that. Actually, uh, that that sounds like uh, you ought to be asking psychologists that kind of question. <laughs> <laughs> How does this? How does it actually sort of mimic the human brain? So in many ways, the, the Spinnaker machine, because that, the name we gave the machine, Spinnaker, which simply stands for Spiking Neural Network Architecture, and and um, the bit that's brain inspired is the way we make the connections. In, in many ways, it looks like a fairly conventional, massively parallel machine. You know, a million processors all talking to each other, um, but the way we connect them is is unique to Spinnaker. And, and, and that's motivated by the challenge of modeling the very high connectivity you find in the brain. So you know, brains are built of neurons, the basic brain cells, and each brain cell uh, has typically thousands, maybe around 10,000 inputs in the cortex, but there are some brain cells with quarter of a million inputs. And, and the communication between these cells is, 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 is principally spikes. You know, neurons go ping every so often. And, 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 and their signaling is just patterns, spatiotemporal patterns of these little impulses, which we can uh, turn into small packets running around the computer. But the key thing, each packet's got to go to thousands of places. And that's what conventional computers are bad at. A conventional computers very good at sending a lot of data from point A to point B. We need to send tiny bits of data from point A to points B, C, D, E, F, you know, up to a thousand destinations. And that requires that we think think about the communications in a different way mm. that is that is amazing actually thinking on that magnitude because when you actually do think about the human brain and our processes my ability just to have my hand now my hand and go like that the capability just to do that i mean obviously to try and mimic that i can't even put context that in my mind of how how much thought has to go into trying to mimic something that that i've known all my life to just be that's it you haven't known it all your life okay oh Right when you were first born, you couldn't do that, right? Oh, wow. And, and if, you, ah, if, if yes. you observe 
tiny babies they have you know very poor motor control and and what they're doing initially lying on their backs is is, is things that sort of is it's called motor babbling so their limbs are just kind of moving around and gradually they work out how what's happening in here relates to what happens out there and and they begin to learn to control is, is how that... their limbs move but it's 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 a you know moving your hand like that that's a very complex yeah. mechanical operation because there are um, thousands of signals involved and muscles and of course you know coordinating your eyes um, you want to think about the fact that your head moves relative to your body and your eyes move relative to your head yet somehow your brain has this idea that you know the table's not moving mm-hmm. even though it's clearly moving as an image in your eyes somehow your brain knows that your eyes are moving and your head's moving and if it subtracts all that out the table's staying where it is and, and your hands moving relative to the table. Yeah. So we, we use after the same sort of effect with the brain itself. Um, the the model that you were creating that direct, um, for it to expand in its own learning curve, natural um, yeah. progression. Uh, oh uh, yes, I mean any any kind of brain modelling has to um, provide for learning. Okay, now mm. now we aren't building a machine to build our own you know single model of everything is that, that we can build. Um, we're building a machine as a general purpose brain modeling platform. So we have many users mm-hmm. uh, and, and we're, in, uh, we're involved in the European Union Human Brain Project. So we have connections with 100 universities across Europe and, 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 and people from many of those places are, are using our machine to, to test their hypotheses. Okay, so, oh, wow. so, so our skill is building the machine and we're doing some work building our own hypotheses and our own models. But actually, the machine's there to support a much wider range of activity than what, what, just the kind of stuff we can come yeah. up with. What sort of like things are you, are, the, are you using the machine for? Is it sort of health-related? Is it multiple? I mean, I'll let you explain, but what sort of things are you going to be using it for? So there's a range of, of, of applications. There's the, the main target for the machine was modeling biology. So there are people out there, um, you know, we, we did a, some collaborative work with the Ulich Supercomputer Center in Germany, where they, they built a very detailed model of a cortical microcolumn. So the outside layer of your brain is, is a kind of sheet that's a bit crumpled up to fit inside your head. It's a pretty uniform sheet. Um, and, and this model was about a square millimeter of that sheet, uh, which has something like 80,000 neurons in it and 280, 280 million connections. Um, so, so that's a bit of biological modelling. Other people have, have built models of, of, of you know, basal ganglia and of um, um, uh, what are the brain regions? Can I remember? Oh, there are, I'm not really a, a great brain neurologist, so I can't remember the names of all the regions. But yeah. people are modelling these different regions, and the circuits are different in different parts of the brain. So more places are reactive than other parts of the brain. Yeah. Yeah, so, uh, the, 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 you know, the cortex is generally reckoned to be the, the, where our higher level functions uh, primarily operate, but we have lower levels of brain. That, you know, some part of your brain is is responsible for keeping you breathing, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's important that that works without getting confused by what the rest of your brain is doing. Um, so there are many different brain regions um, responsible for for different parts of the process a lot of the back of the cortex is doing vision so our eyes you know when, when the signals from our eyeballs go first straight to the back of the brain well th- through a couple of, yeah. of, wow. of, of relay points but the, the processing really starts at the back of the head and then works its way forward um, so quite a lot of the human cortex is, is, is taken up understanding what you're seeing um, 
anyway, that, that, those are the kind of biological models, but there are also people who are interested in, in, in more abstract learning models. So while we've been building this, particularly over the last 10 years, there's been this explosion in, in machine learning. Okay? Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, if you talk to Alexa on your Amazon Echo or whatever, um, your speech is being sent off to a data center where some neural network is analyzing it. Now, those neural networks are not the same as ours. Those neural networks don't spike. Mm-hmm. They're, they're artificial neural nets, kind of based on 1980s models. Yeah, they're and just uh, just um, completing a program, really, aren't they? It's just like typing in a command and the computer's responding to it, really. Well, that's uh, yeah, basically all computers do, right? <laughs> that's, that's where the um, um, that's the difference between a brain and a computer, though, isn't it? Yeah, but 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 so so the models we run are just you know they're computer programs. They they run just like other programs, and if the, if there's something that's going to capture some capability of the brain, it's not going to be the computer program. It's going to be the model that that computer program is supporting. Mm-hmm. So there's, if you like, there's a level of abstraction between what's going on in the in the processor itself and, and, and what's happening in the model. Mm. Um, and it's important to try and understand these different levels of abstraction. But we, we have people we're working with who are very keen on trying to see if they can use these, these kind of spiking more biological networks to implement some of the machine learning algorithms, mm. right? So that's, a, that's less biological, it's more sort of applied um, synthetic networks. Um, and, and there's very interesting developments there. And there's a kind of expectation that spiking networks and industrial machine learning are, are on a convergence course. It feels like with all the, um, the programming now and technology, how it's constantly advancing. Also, like with your the model of the brain, that would never be like a completed, finished project, really. It will always constantly be adapting, constantly learning, constantly upgrading, just like the human body itself, how we constantly... Oh yeah, standard different programs really. Well, it's it's in the nature of research that you know when when you solve one problem, you move on to the next one. You mm. you, you never reach a final conclusion. I mean, there is a kind of ultimate goal here. You know, if we if you think of understanding the brain as a giant mountain to climb, where we're sort of you know rustling our way up the foothills. Base camp one, maybe we're a base camp. One, yeah, <laughs> so, somewhere down down the bottom. But there is this 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 this. Uh, uh, feature of the work that we still fundamentally don't understand mm-hmm. how the brain works as an information processor so there's a, there's a real sort of scientific challenge there and you know to go back to your earlier question um what's the motivation behind the work well it's 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 motivated by that grand challenge of, of adding to our understanding of how the brain works and that understanding can then lead to advances in medicine because diseases of the brain cost the developed economies huge amounts of money here, not to uh, um, even include the, the the effect on individuals' lives who are affected by these problems. Okay, they're, mm. they're, they're, yeah. I think the EU cost of brain diseases is something like eighty billion euros a year. So mm. it's, uh, it's 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 well, it's Alzheimer's uh, and stuff like this. It's like well, it's Alzheimer's, schizophrenia, depression. Um, you know, a, a range of other diseases with technical names that uh, I probably can't reproduce. But the um, the big pharma companies who develop drugs have kind of given up developing drugs for brain diseases because they don't have the models. The, w- the way you develop a, a drug these days is you understand the disease pathway and then you design the drug to interrupt that pathway somewhere mm. to try and have some effects. But with, with diseases of the brain, they don't have the models because we don't understand 
what's mm. going on. Um, so, so all this work of trying to understand the brain, trying to build models, ultimately can contribute to um, giving the, the, the pharma industries the tools they need to sort of reboot drug development for treating diseases. So, mm. so there is there is ultimately a medical hope, but I don't want anybody to, you know, who, who's who's got a relative with a, with with a with a problem in this category to think, you know, it's going to be fixed next year because this is a a, a long really time. long haul in in mm. scientific terms. It's, it's a very how, how long do you foresee something like this taking? Like I know Chris said before, this is going to be something that's going to be continuous forever. But is it you see us getting to a point Could where we be. can understand it to a point where we can sort of heal these diseases and things like that? I think I think um, well, well the Human Brain Project is this big European project which had a ten year time scale, and and its primary output is going to be to produce an infrastructure for supporting this kind of research going forwards. Okay, so if you think it takes you ten years to build the infrastructure, you're clearly talking about a program that's measured in many tens of years. Um, so you know, thinking of this as something that's likely to take 50 years, I think is realistic. Mm. Um, but I'm hoping we'll get, you know, insights. We'll get we'll get new ideas uh, that, that that may may lead to lines of of, of of constructive development. And in addition to to the medical application, um, the other area, of course, is 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 taking this across and using it in in machines for uh, improving artificial intelligence. Whatever that means. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, that's what, what we're talking about is um, the advancement of creating and unfolding an actual conscious being from a from a uh, machine, basically. Yeah. Well, uh, consciousness is 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 a sort of area I tend not to to, to get drawn into. Okay. I mean, I'm, it's a, it, obviously it's a fascinating area. It's inevitable, right? isn't it? When you're you know, it's <laughs> kind of fundamental to understanding who and what we are as human beings, but we can't really. Um, to, yet, mimic, to mimic something of grandeur of consciousness is, is in, would be yeah. well we don't know what that means now, the, the, good, there is an point. area of the human brain project that's quite con concerned with consciousness but when you look into what they mean they actually mean something that's, that's quite low level uh, compared with how the general public would think about a conscious machine mm -hmm. I mean, what they're talking about is understanding the neurological difference between being asleep and being awake, okay? Because well. if you're asleep, you're unconscious, your brain's certainly not inactive. I mean, brains are hugely active during sleep, but, but they aren't aware of themselves or their environment in any kind of realistic way. Mm. When you're awake, then you know, you're aware of your environment and yourself, your position in it. That's a really good point, actually. That's, that's, really the, point. that's the kind of, 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 of interpretation of consciousness that that we can begin to sort of see sensible things. We can see changes in the dynamics of a brain between sleep and awake states. And we can begin to understand what underpins those. So, um, you know, we might have a machine that's active, awake in some sense, and a machine that's not awake, that's doing some internal repair processes. We're not entirely sure what sleep is about, okay, still. Yeah, sleep possibly. is still a bit of a mystery, and there's several levels levels of sleep that seem to have different functions. But do you, do you have any theories about that? Um, I don't have. Um, I, that's not my area of expertise. Yeah. I mean, I, I I I read work on that. So there's there's, uh, there's a very good book I read recently talking about the role of sleep and, and a sleep scientist 
you know, has, has got fairly convincing evidence that there's one part of the brain, the hippocampus, which kind of stores the memories you build up during one day. And then when you sleep, there's a process which appears to not simply copy those memories across the cortex, um, because they aren't stored in that way, but it actually blends those memories with the existing memories in cortex so that you, you, you know, the memories from that day become more permanent, but they also become integrated with the other stuff that you know in, in, in a more useful manner. Yeah. So, um, you know, it's not like today's memory are going in this file over there and yesterday's memories are over there. Mm. They're actually all blended into a kind of um, uniform mechanism for understanding the world and operating in it. Oh, wow. Fascinating. That. But when you were saying before as well about... Um you slightly touched on artificial intelligence, and uh, Chris brought up consciousness. Do you see a potential where? I mean, I don't. I don't. It doesn't need this conversation. Doesn't even need to go down the sense of like the bigger picture of consciousness, <coughs> but even just like say on a on a level with the the supercomputer. Do you think that that a supercomputer in the future could actually sort of perceive? I'm not saying consciousness, but just even um, traits where it seems conscious. Yeah. Again, I, I I would sort of make the distinction between. The computer itself, which is just this automaton obeying instructions, and the model that those that it's supporting. So, so I could certainly uh, perceive or conceive of a situation where a, a model of a, of a neural network of some form begins to de- display some yeah. of the properties we associate with consciousness. Yeah. But again, I would say it's the network, it's the model that's seeming to be conscious. It's not the machine. I mean, there's already pro- machines out there which like can adapt to situations, not hold any like obviously deep, meaningful, emotional connection to an event, but like the idea of um, I think it was called Deep Blue, or um, the machine that built that they built in the seventies to um, that beat all the chess masters. Uh, yeah, it wasn't quite as long ago as the seventies. Deep, Deep Blue beat. Gary Kasparov. That's the one. I think 1986 or 7. Oh, I thought it was further back than that, actually. And of course, if you... But that anticipated moves and it um, altered its thought process. Well, that's the thought process. It's altered its connections to make the the move. Well, it was was using fairly classic algorithmic games playing. So it, it, it sort of... You know, it looked at all the possible moves and then all the possible moves the other guy could make in response to that, and then so it it, it sort of did a very quite a deep search of all possible future moves, mm. and and then it had algorithms which kind of said, well, this situation looks bad for me, right? So whatever moves took me there, I'm I'm going to stop searching that space because it's obviously not a good area. But with I'm going to focus on the places where I look like I'm in a stronger position. So it's doing a lot of deep algorithmic search. How how does it though? That something like that can lose when it knows all the moves. How can it get beat? Well, it, it it can't explore all the moves. Okay, um, even with chess, the search space is too big for a computer to go through it exhaustively and find every possible direction. Oh, wow. Now, if you remember. Maybe you don't because you're too young. But if you remember when Deep Blue beat Gary Kasparov, everybody said, "Well, yeah, that's very impressive." But you know, it's only chess. Was it over three games? I think it, it was. It was over a series. Yeah, I think is, is it three or five? Has it sure. been replicated on other games now, though? Hasn't well, it? Well, that's what they said. They said, you know, that's only chess. When a computer can beat a human at Go, we'll be really impressed because Go has a much 
faster branching, much wider branching path. There are far more possible moves at each yeah. stage. Mm. And, and of course, it was less than 20 years later that DeepMind's AlphaGo beat the world chess champion at Go, yeah. right? And that, that really was impressive. And the difference is Deep Blue was doing this kind of thing with algorithmic search and AlphaGo was using neural networks. So okay. the advancement in the technology just in that short space of time, or was it the machine just adapted its... Uh, well, machines got more powerful. That's, mm, that's, that's always been a factor. But the, <laughs> but the way people approach machine learning problems changed fundamentally in about 2004 or five. Up to that point, um, neural nets were at best the second best way of tackling any machine learning problem. There are always algorithmic approaches that work better. But then Jeff Hinton, who's very famous in the neural network world, revisited some ideas he'd had in the 1980s and realized that over 20 years, computers had got so much more powerful that things that were not possible in the 80s were now becoming possible. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, and suddenly neural nets became the best way of solving machine learning problems. That, that's led to this explosion in neural net-based machine learning. You know, it's it's mm. why Google employs um, well, uh, 500 people at DeepMind in London and thousands around the world and all yeah. the big you know, Facebook and Amazon and people now have teams of hundreds of people in machine learning. Mm -hmm. It's all enabled by this, this, this uh, new approach using neural networks, again, based on 1980s neurons. Um, but uh, but proving very effective at everything from image recognition to speech recognition to driving autonomous vehicles to to all all these kind of uh, problems where the machine has to cope with an extremely complex. Is there anything sacred that the machine can't really touch? Oh, many things. Yes, all, all of the applications are quite narrow, mm -hmm. and there's, there's still nothing approaching the kind of general purpose human capabilities mm -hmm. where you know we can go and chop a piece of wood in the back garden and then solve a maths problem in the next room and you know we can yeah. uh, kick a football i mean um, you could program it to chop the wood and then you could program <laughs> it to go in there and solve a maths puzzle <laughs> but could you understand the reason why they would do that well i mean the, the, the you can program you can train a machine to solve one of these problems at once building a machine which has never seen a football before and saying go out and play football uh -huh. you know like uh, Cristiano Ronaldo I mean we just have no idea how to and of course the mechanics there is, is usually challenging as well it's not just the computer control but even the computer control is way beyond us it doesn't feel like it's out the realms of possibility that, that something like that could actually be put into play in the future but do you think that gap will, could ever be yeah. bridged a little bit Oh, it'll, it'll, it'll certainly close, and, and computer skills will become broader. Um, but I don't think we'll ever ever be able to build machines with with full human-like capabilities, you know, across the board, yes. until we understand much better how the brain gives us those capabilities. So we're not expecting the Terminator yet. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, you know. Um, science fiction has explored the space. I mean, it's, and of course this raises the question as to whether you'd want to do that if you could. That's right? the best question. That's mm. a really good question. Um, and, uh, you know, um, what I usually say is that if, if you want a human brain, there are fairly well-established mechanisms for making those. You know, they're fairly straightforward. People do it all the time. Um, building a machine with a similar capability, 
with current technology, you'd fill an aircraft hangar and it would require a 20 megawatt power station at least, whereas the biological system is about 20 watts or a million times more efficient. You know, why do you want one that's so big that you can't fit it inside any conceivable size head mm. and needs, a, needs its own power station when you can make a biological one that's... Uh, you know, very efficient and quite compact. Yeah, you you said you mentioned there before about um how the human brain may be the you need to, we need to understand the human brain first before we start delving into the realms of artificial intelligence. I think it was Ray Kurzweil who talked about he actually said the key to artificial intelligence in the future is actually going to be the understanding of the human brain. Do you do you believe that's the key? If we do, I know you said before it's, it we're a long way off, but if we do model the human brain. Do you think that'll be the key to understanding like artificial intelligence and building artificial intelligence? I think I think the key to to general purpose human-like AI in 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 the form that Kurt Vile and of course Alan Turing thought about this too, and and and, and the Turing test was intended to to test for human-like AI capabilities. I think the key to achieving that will be understanding the brain a lot better, and the key to understanding the brain. Mm. is to build computer models uh, that test hypotheses so come up with with theories i mean the the brain is so complex that simply building you know a real-time model that modeled every neuron and every connection would not of itself bring understanding okay you'd end up with a model that was so complex that you couldn't understand that any more than you could understand the biological system Mm. it would be easier to interrogate it it's it's easier to probe a computer model than a biological brain Mm. Um, but understanding comes from developing theories testing theories and getting higher level explanations as as to what the principles of operation are and I think you know we we cannot understand the brain a hundred billion neurons at a time that's that's too complex we we need explanations that kind of abstract away from that and, and 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 turn some important principles into mathematical equations or something of that nature mm. i know you slightly touched on this before chris mentioned it about the um, about the, the computer itself that you're building did you did you see that it i'm not sure if you you answered this but um did you see that the computer that you're building yourself is it has to be does it learn itself or do you have to program it the stage is that now it, 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 it so that needs answering carefully um so there are models the computer supports that learn themselves those models of course have to be programmed right so um, biological neural networks learn by adjusting um, f- the most simple level the, the, the strength of connections so we have these thousand million million synapses and each synapse couples one neuron to another and those synapses change over time and, and you know, it's reasonable to believe, on, on, on the best of our knowledge, that you know, our personalities and all our memories are stored in the way those synapses uh, were initially set up by our genes and then modified by our experience. And we can build models of, of the way those synapses adapt, not just changing their connection strength, which is the, the simplest way of adjusting a neural network, but actually you know, um, structural plasticity where the connect, you know, weak connections drop and new connections form. Yeah, even new neurons form, of course, particularly in early development. Yeah. Uh, but even in adult human brains, we now know that uh, there is some formation of new neurons going on in, in key areas of the brain. And there's certainly synaptic rewiring going on. Mm. Um, and we, we can build models of that, and those models can then 
learn from experience. So you can play things through them and they will learn the statistics of the things you play through them, for instance. Um, or, or they can you can you can implement what are called reinforcement learning algorithms, which also clearly happen in the brain, um, where the network does something, makes a decision, and that decision turns out good and then gets reinforced and it's more likely to make that decision again, or it turns out badly and it's less likely to make that decision again. You know, in the brain, um, dopamine is one of the sort of um, reward uh, neuromodulators, um, and, and dopamine probably plays a role in, in reinforcing synaptic adjustments uh, to encourage you to learn things that produce, that deliver good results. So there are many different mechanisms that have been hypothesized for how yeah. the brain learns, and the, these can all be modeled. And if you, if you build the models, and building the model is a, is a matter of coding. Um, when you build the model, the model is then capable of emulating the learning that you see in the biology to, to a greater or lesser extent. Fascinating that. What's your? I would love to see your views on the. I know a lot of people like Ray Kurzweil talks about this, and he. I, I think he calls it the, the the three different steps. He calls it the, the steps to immortality. He calls it. But basically, what I'm trying to say is, is that he talks about a process in the middle before we get our artificial intelligence, where there'll be a point in human existence where we, before we become the AI sort of thing or transfer our consciousness, whatever. He says we'll start uh, start putting the human brain together with technology. Do you have do you have any thoughts around that? Is, do you foresee something where us as ourselves, uh, as an evolution for ourselves, we'll be sort of adding technology to the human brain? Yeah, I mean, he's probably meaning it in in a, in a closer integration, but of course it's already happening. I mean, you need, just need to go and sit on the train and watch what people are doing, and they're all engaging with their smartphones. Yeah. And effectively, the smartphone is a great brain prosthesis. Yeah. Okay, um, my mother never really bothered to write her diary down. She kept it in her head, right? But uh, I'm hopeless. I, I, I can't remember what I'm doing tomorrow yeah. most of the time. Um, I'm highly dependent on technology, pr you know, principally smartphone, but of course I have backup. I can, if I lose my smartphone, I can still access the data because it's the data that matters, not the machine. Mm. Um and, and so we're already using prostheses, but uh, I think Kurzweil is talking about a closer integration. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. You can already see some of that happening. So, you know, cochlear implants are now pretty routine for treating certain forms of deafness. And that's, you know, bypassing the, uh, the outer ear mechanisms and feeding signals straight into the auditory nerves uh, from, you know, microphone sensors and so on. Um, less developed, but already being used are artificial retinas so again this is this is treating um, somebody who's who's lost their sight in a particular way you can insert you know, a, a silicon camera into the back of the eyeball and have it send signals down the optic nerve and restore some degree of sight mm -hmm. um, that's clearly going to advance now these are if you like fixing um, deficiencies in individuals rather than augmenting people with full capabilities yeah. Um, that uh, isn't currently achieved except through external prostheses like the smartphone, but uh, I'm pretty sure it will come in some form that you can you can interface the biology to a more reliable memory system, for instance, and work with that. Now, again, um, just because it's possible doesn't mean it's a good thing to do. Okay, mm. and uh, um, 
once you're getting into that space, then you really do need to uh, have people thinking very carefully about the ethical implications yeah. of of of, uh, of where this might take us. Um, you know, as as with you know, semi-intelligent robots, and particularly with autonomous weapons, um, people have to think long and hard about the implications and whether this is a path we want to go down. Um, mm. But but uh, the, the ability to do it, I think, will will come. Yeah, definitely. Do you, oh, did you? Did you? I was going to just quickly say when you were speaking about ethics, and it is a very big question that I think does need to be answered. Um, sorry, thought about. Um, did you actually, when you built your model, did you actually consider ethics in your model as well? Um, only only a little bit, because really we're not anywhere near difficult, difficult ethical territory. But within the Human Brain Project, there is a complete ethics activity going on, and every uh, every aspect of the Human Brain Project is ethically examined, you know, on a on a regular basis, and questions are asked. Uh, our particular area, because it's not it's not really near any significant ethical boundaries, doesn't does not get as much scrutiny as perhaps some other areas where you know, they're dealing with human patients, where ethical issues are very much at the top of the agenda but we still you know we still have to answer questions on on how we see the ethics i mean one generic issue in developing any kind of computer technology is the issue of dual use okay that that, that means you develop something that you think is going to you know be used in consumer goods or whatever but does it also have military applications and, and if it does, are you know are they, are, are they things you should worry about? Are they going to conflict and stuff like that as well? Yeah, I mean the the EU has pretty strict rules in its science programs about uh, you know not doing any work that's directly military. It's it's all you know it won't fund work with direct military application. But you can you know almost everything you do in the computer world has potential military application. Yeah, uh, I mean it's a it's a question you need to handle very carefully, of course, because you know the military use paper clips. And to hold bits of paper together like the rest of us. And does that mean that, you know, people who manufacture paper clips have to worry about dual use? Well, probably not. Um, but it, it, these kind of questions have to be thought about and, and addressed proportionate, proportionately. Yeah. That's it. Oh, it's, um, it's a deep and fascinating insight, and especially um, very when you're talking about the ethical side of some form of military capability, I mean, there must be. Um, I don't know why, but the film "The Men Who Stare at Goats." I mean, we've all, we've constantly looked at the power of the brain in uh, in search of like the wonders of magnitude of what it can do. I mean, we're still trying to figure out our own brains, like you said at the beginning. I mean, is there some form of um, potential power and access that our own brains have an access that you may have found through your work, maybe? Oh, I th I don't think so. No, I mean we're a long way off being able to. Not like like stare at goats and like influence like telekinesis or like that. Blow, blow the sheep. Yes, <laughs> uh, nothing, like, nothing like that. But um, I was just wondering if there's any advancements where you think maybe the human potential, maybe the human mind or the human brain could actually do something capable of something like that. Maybe not in that extent. Well, you know, I mean, what what what. What we focus a lot of resource on in the modern developed world is is educating human brains. I mean, there's no doubt that 
a human brain that's taken reasonable advantage of a decent education system is far more capable than one that hasn't, yeah. right? Um, and, 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 and this is a process which has evolved over the centuries but has really only become um, commoditized fairly recently over the last maybe 100 years. Um, but it's a very important way of, of advancing the capabilities mm. of, of human brains is, is just, you know, going to school. Yeah. Paying a bit of attention. Do, do you ever um, see a, a point in um, human history or human evolution? I know we've already done it now, which a sense I would say with the iPhone. But do you see it on a, on another level where we speed up uh, the uh, the evolution of learning, like on a faster basis? Because if we look at the evolution of the planet now, there was arguably it was a period of time where people didn't have access to internet, and maybe the learning the the learn of themselves in their own brain was was I would say it was slower. And then there's been a point on the planet now where technology has exponentially got better and then from that you can definitely see that learning's got better do you see that gap jumping again even more um i think access to information has has, has been spectacularly enhanced by the internet mm. okay so so you can now you know somebody asks you a question right who founded the national health service is what i to look up recently mm-hmm. and of course you know you just get your phone out yeah. Uh, type it in and, and, and the answer Voila. Uh, pops out and, and, and uh, you know answering that kind of question I mean I, I, you know I, I would have thought smartphones have completely ruined pub quizzes although I suspect they've invented rules that stop you yeah. using them yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so access to information is, is, has become greatly enhanced through the internet um, but of course information is not understanding and the internet contains a very large amount of misinformation as well as uh, good information and this requires uh, intelligence and insight on behalf of the user to recognize which is which uh, when you're accessing things on the internet I mean there's 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 lots of stuff there that's just plain wrong right Um, and and, uh, it's not always easy to tell the difference it makes you wonder though if a program can be put into like um, say the human the human brain just literally program it up the human brain like a, a program to learn Spanish immediately like could something like that be even plausible I th- it's it's fairly implausible from what from what we do understand of, of how the brain works I mean because we you know to, in order to learn Spanish you've got to go and change a very large number of these synaptic connections in in the language centers of your brain in ways that we're a long way from being able to understand. It's never going to be like the matrix where you just program it in. No, and it's always, and and it's almost certainly going to be different for every human, right? Mm -hmm. Because... Oh, wow, that's a good point. Although although there's a lot of commonality between our brains, there are also a lot of differences, and some of that's inevitable because of the way our brains are specified in our genes mm. so we have you know we all have uh, different parents uh, who who put different sort of programs into our gene pool um, but in fact there's not enough information in the human genome to specify every connection in the brain mm. right so there's fairly it, it seems very likely to me that what what's happening in the brain is, is, is you know you have a bunch of neurons here a population of a thousand neurons here and the genes say go and connect to this other population over here and each of you connect to about 10% of what you find right mm-hmm. but uh, do it randomly so, so the connection you can't program the connections because there's not enough information but you can program the kind of general level of connectivity and that means that even if you if you take identical twins 
the way these random connections emerge will be different in each case. So the individuality is always going to be the key component. So every individual will be different, even if their genes are identical. And of course, most of the time, the genes aren't identical. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a lot of variability in, in the fine detail. Uh, from mm. one person to the next. So, so, so unless actually, you had access to every single brain at once, then you can never really understand. Well, unless you could, you know, if you could read out my 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 connectome, say, in order to learn Spanish, I need to make these changes and then write it back in, <laughs> then I immediately become fluent in Spanish. Um, you know, that's a hugely complex problem. I, I, I mm. can't see that being solved at that level because every person would have to be different and you're talking about reading out vast amounts of data and it's data we can't even read individually you know we mm. can't read one synapse yet mm. um, we we can see where the synapses are but actually evaluating the strength of that synapse in in the biological system is next to impossible yeah so the advancements in in learning technology is never going to be at the point of where instantaneous learning can actually occur no no, I mean, you know, I, I can get Google Translate on my smartphone and I can talk English in one side and it'll talk yeah. Spanish out the other side with and, and you'll do a pretty good job of translating. But That's why I think people want to become, they want to become their own smartphone. They want, <laughs> want to become their own, like, like there's a film out there, isn't there, it was completely like that with Johnny Depp, uh, where he has access to all the information at once. Yeah, yeah but, uh, you know, as I say, information has become very accessible, but understanding, I'm not sure, is... Yeah. It's improved and actually understanding in some ways is more important than information it, it also seems to me as well that the, um, that another big problem of learning is the, um, the vastness of the variety of knowledge that's available at the time so when I say about this I'm saying like like when you were talking about the, um, the Spanish when you're programming something like Spanish like you said it's too broad it's too vast to actually program into the brain at once even though the brain the, like the learning potential of the brain is so so vast and so much more larger than a computer itself. Yeah. Yeah, and, and, and almost certainly, you know, if I as a native English speaker learn Spanish, the way the Spanish is integrated into my brain will be very much affected by the way my brain's formed around my knowledge of English. Mm. So I don't, you know, I don't start with a completely new bit of brain and put Spanish in there. I've got to blend the Spanish in with... The stuff that's already there, which you know includes a bit of French and a very small bit of Latin and maybe the odd bit of German, um, <laughs> right? Because uh, I did, you know, I did the three languages to O level a very long time ago. Um, so it's 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 got to be blended in. It's it's not uh, it's not a simple upload mm. problem. Um, so yeah, I don't I don't see that happening anytime. Not really good. <laughs> a, a question I wanted to ask you as well, and this is something that I've actually questioned in my head, and I, would, I wanted to propose it to you, and I would love to see your answer um, or your thoughts on it anyway. But uh, do you know the capability of like us to see if, as human beings, like you said before, you can't remember all the all the things that you do in a day, or if you have a memory or whatever, you can't remember it. Like it's not, it doesn't feel like it's all there in your mind, sort of. See, it. but see if Chris says to me, "Can you remember when we did this when we were driving in the car and we played this song?" it's like the mind has this ability to like sort of pull like an access file out your mind and then go to that have you ever thought about what what process yeah. is going on there yeah so that, that I, I mean i think the simplest example of that and the most baffling is is if you're trying to remember somebody's name yeah okay mm-hmm. and you and you can remember i know it begins with c 
how does that work yeah because there's no you know there's no way you file things in your brain by you know initial letter yeah but everybody's had this experience of you know i'm, I'm sure it begins with c but i can't you know yeah. i can't remember it and then you go off and think about something else and then suddenly it pops into yeah. your head Colin, it's like an access yeah. it's like sort of like an access code that's what it feels like something yeah like. yeah we, we we do know that that, that uh, you know that, that a lot of the way the brain operates is through associativity. I mentioned associative memories earlier, but um, uh, associativity is when is when you relate things. Okay, so if you're trying to remember somebody's name um, because you you just passed them in the street, okay, that that can be really hard. But then you can then you think, well, where did I last meet them? Oh, I met you know I met them in this friend's house over there, and you know we had steak and chips for dinner and, and you, you, as you build up the context in which you last met them then you're much more likely to remember these additional details because everything everything is kind of interlinked and the more links you can make the more things you can you can tie into that particular memory you're trying to recover the more likely it is to pop out I think but again you know I'm a computer engineer i I design transistors for a living. This yeah. is this is not really my yeah. academic <laughs> it's, it's a, domain. I'm probably treading on somebody else's academic toes fairly badly in these statements. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> you, you, you're giving me that's the thing as well. You, you're giving like really good. You got really good given good answers, and I think it's it's just good to talk about these topics. And mm. obviously, if you've got you've got a great insight into them. Something else I want to uh, bring to you as well is, is um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with this article, but it was. Uh, I, I told you about it on the way down in the car about the the guy who's the neuroscientist who's talking about the ability within a human brain to remove memories. Have you did you see that article? Oh, yes, you did. No, no, that, I haven't seen that. I think that came out only a couple of weeks ago, and it was basically uh, I can't remember the guy's Bill something, a neuroscientist from London, <coughs> and he said that in the future we're going to have the the capability to actually remove like sort of pick and choose memories like bad memories to mm -hmm. remove from our mind. Well. Uh, you know, one 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 thing I can speak of anecdotally, and again, I don't I don't fully understand the process here, um, but a very important development in in medicine is is a, a drugs that stop you remembering. Mm. Okay, and you know, my father had uh, major heart surgery. Um, this is uh, twenty years ago, I guess, or something, um, and. and um, Two days later, he had he had no memory of it. Okay, so oh, wow. so it's probably a fairly unpleasant experience for a day, but because he didn't remember it, it, it had no lasting impact on him at all, and he recovered much faster as a result. So so uh, uh, so I know certainly there are drugs that can stop you forming new memories, and, and medically that can be extremely useful uh, because it's the bad memories that that make you miserable that make recovery slow right if you can't remember the unpleasantness you went through the day before yeah. um, you know you look forward um, if you can if the past is there haunting you, you you dwell on it but if you can't remember it um, you look forward and you, and you recover much better it's like the human sometimes I think as well the, the human brain sometimes I think in a way it has a mechanism built in, built in within itself that see if something traumatic happens in your life it sort of has sort of some sort of mechanism that sort of stops that it puts like a thing in place to already. I feel that sometimes to like sort of put a, a bad memory to the back of your mind, or it can actually bring it to the forefront of your mind as well. Mm. Do, you, do you feel that as well? Well, I, I, I mean, again, you know, you're talking to the wrong person, yeah. really. This <laughs> is, but I mean, the, the, the experts on this are the people who treat 
conditions such as post-traumatic stress disorder, which is which is kind of the extreme case yeah. of, of of going through something, some very bad experience, and then having that kind of trouble you. And you know, what 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 are the processes you can use to uh, not me- necessarily lose that memory, but to basically blunt its edges so that it uh, so that it, it doesn't continue traumatizing you into the future. But as I say, it's, yeah. it's <laughs> what, what do you? What, oh, sorry. Wait, I'm going to say this is way way out of my territory. Yeah. So, so. What, what do you foresee in the next, say, thirty years in terms of computer science? How do you see that playing out? Well, I think I think we're we're seeing the beginnings of of this explosion in in machine learning applications, and um, and that manifests itself in, in in various ways that people are aware of. So, the development in in autonomous vehicles, which is, you know, they aren't as imminent as, as some people think. I mean, they they can be used in closed and constrained environments fairly effectively already, but mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, my my car has got some automatic driving aids but you know put them in typical british weather on the m6 in pouring rain and yeah. they just give up and say you know you have control i can't cope um and i think i think that's um you know th- those are the kind of problems still to be addressed but but the principles at work there are ones that can continue to be developed of, of building machines whether they're cars or even vacuum cleaners or mm-hmm. or, or toy robots that 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 have senses, and and have enough compute and enough learning power, enough inbuilt intelligence to respond sensibly to the environment. Um, I, th- I think we're going to see an explosion in, in in products of that nature. Stuff in your house is going to start you know, reacting. It's it's not it's not you know, becoming more proactive. It's not simply going to react when you push a button. It starts. It's going to. Um, be looking for opportunities to to do something useful. It sounds like with the computer changing your your home environments, you know, being able to program the the changing of a light bulb and stuff like that. Change, and um, with like, say, we mentioned the Amazon Alexa, I know you can change the TV just by a, vis- a verbal command and as the lights as well. It also makes me think as well, like, is the computer eventually going to change us? Going to change our neurological networks without us even realizing well it, 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 it certainly has huge influence on us mm-hmm. so, so the, you know the smartphone as a, as a memory prosthesis has, has reduced the load on our biological memories quite significantly and I think people are generally get, get quite lazy I mean the thing we really notice in universities is you know you, you set undergraduates problems that involve them doing mental arithmetic mm-hmm. and, and they are very poor at it right compared with my generation are we getting weaker? Oh yeah, and in, in, in certainly in our ability to do arithmetic, by you know, in our heads or by hand, mm-hmm. um, we're much weaker because uh, calculators ubiquitous. So, mm-hmm. you know, why why do you need to work out how to do the square root manually if yeah. your calculator can do it for you? Um, and and you know, should you learn to do the square root manually? Uh, I mean, I, I there are big dangers. I mean, this is a, another specific area, but there are big dangers in completely relying on your calculator for arithmetic. Um, mm-hmm. You know, not having any sense as to whether the answer it gives you is vaguely sensible or not is, is high risk. Yeah. Um, but you know, do we really all need to know how to do long division and practice it endless times at school like we did when I was at you know, primary school. Yeah, same with me, um, do you do you th- sorry to jump in, but do you think that'll actually make room for something else, maybe? 
Well, you'd like to think so, that yeah. if we're not spending our time learning those kind of things, that we, we can spend our time learning other things. And, of course, you know, one, one of the things that's very much coming into schools now is coding, right? mm. is, 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 um, is, is giving everybody some kind of understanding of what these computer things actually do, how they work at, at a low level. And I think that's, that's certainly important now, that, that even for people who are never going to earn their living as a computer programmer, to have a, a basic understanding of, 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 of what a program does, what it can do and what it can't do is, is, is very important in the modern world. And, and, um, and coding is quite a nice mathematical discipline as well. I don't know if you've ever got involved in coding, but it's, it's very demanding, okay? You get one semicolon in the wrong place and your program will not work, mm. right? So every, every, every character has got to be precisely um, expressed in the right place, and, and so it's a new form of math- mathematics, really. Well, it is. I mean, it, it is. It's an applied area of mathematics. Um, it, it's it's making mathematics work, but it can also be give you very rapid feedback. Um, mm. You know, if you build a program and you run it and it does what you want, that's actually quite a quick re- reward. You know, mm. building stuff and seeing it work is is, is something that most people find um, encouraging. And, and with with computer programming, it's a very rapid turnaround. You get very very quick rewards for making things work. It feels like eventually, though, everything's going to be a, just a computer computerized program. I mean, you know, you're not going to even sorry, you're not even going to be able to go out and do the garden. I mean, you just press a button, or you just, like, automatically the, all the plants are watered to the right levels at the right temperature. Everything's completely computerized, programmed to perfection, and basically what's left for humanity what do we have to do i know that's a philosophical question where's it going to put (laughs) humans on the scale of it but kind of puts us in a in what i believe is like an obsolete in the computer terms well of course uh, the employment issue and what what do humans do gainfully is is a very important social question and uh, you know i i learned a, a year or two back that we, we talked about autonomous vehicles. About 10% of the UK workforce earns its primary living by driving, mm-hmm. right? So that's you know two and a half million people whose whose, whose jobs are go out of the window if autonomous vehicles become a reality. Now, it's not going to happen overnight. There's going to be time, and of course, you could also say that if you go back a couple of hundred years. Ninety-five percent of people earn their living working on the land, right? Mm-hmm. All you know, all those jobs gone. The number, the proportion of people working on the land now—I don't know what it is, but I guess it's a few percent. Yeah, it's very low. Um, you know, so we've shifted ninety percent of people from farming Jeez. to something else. So we can shift ten percent from driving to something else, as long as we manage it properly. It's already the um, the impact of how much um, trust we have it in a um, computer program, without obviously asking the ethical questions of what a program can do eventually, but. Um, I've seen a statistic before that said 56% of people would automatically trust an autonomous car before getting in it. And that's a sign society right now will actually, they've never been in an autonomous car which can self-drive itself, but 56, 56% of people would automatically trust that. I think, well, the data suggesting that it would be better anyway. Yeah, a lot of data, data, data suggesting suggest that well, computers indicate safety. Yeah, yeah and, and, and of course, you know, part, part of that trust is the fact that you know this autonomous vehicle wouldn't the authorities would not allow it on the road unless it had been proved to be reliable okay. mm. so so there's some there's some grounds for believing that you know if the taxi that turns up at your door doesn't have a driver it's probably still all right 
um, because there are systems in place that yeah. would prevent that from happening. You if, trust the systems. If, if it were not all right, and of course there, there are many places now where you go on autonomous vehicles. I mean, you know, most of the sort of railways around airports are, are driverless, and, and and some public transport systems are now driverless. I mean, they're yeah. they're usually constrained to rails, so they're they're in a much less open environment than a car. But um, you know, people are still generally happy to get on them. Um, mm. Yeah. I look forward to aut- autonomous vehicles. So actually. do I, really. To be honest. Al- although I do, I do recognise they're tougher than, than people would have you believe. I mean, one can see the benefits. For, I mean, ultimately, of course, you know, th- this country. I think the annual deaths from road traffic accidents are now about is it sixteen, seventeen hundred a year. No you know, wonder people trust computers more than they're actually human. It's still <laughs> the equivalent of a small war going on, you know, in terms of casualties, oh. and and. Um, and there's a lot more that could be done to reduce that. Yeah. And then, of course, we have one of the safest roads in in the world in yeah, terms of casualties. Um, and, and that number is very impressive because it's half what it was about 20 years ago, right? So it's it's it has been brought down, um, but it's still 1,700 too many. Um, and, and autonomous vehicles offer the hope of, of uh, you know eliminating road deaths, mm-hmm. um, which is ultimately the aim, really. Which, which, which is a very important aim, and and uh, even bringing them down significantly would be a a good contribution. Um, so, so I'm all in favour. But the other aspect, of course, is you know, um, I've had parents get old, and and you know, there comes a point where you have to say, I don't think you should be driving anymore. Right? Mm. And uh, Duke of Edinburgh, maybe. <laughs> well, uh, Duke of Edinburgh, maybe a case in point. He, he appears to have. Decided himself, but he took a fairly major accident to cause him to. Two major accidents, wasn't it? One shortly after the other. Was it? I don't. I, I, I think so. I, I don't know. But, but uh, you know, the problem in modern society is that you know, giving up your car um, represents a huge loss of mobility to most people yeah. living in most places. And of course, if you could just get an autonomous vehicle, even if you could just t- take you around locally, mm-hmm. it would be a huge boon to to people who uh, are no longer physically or mentally capable of driving their own cars. So mm-hmm. so I could see lots of advantages, um, even if they have quite a limited functionality, right? So the, you know, the autonomous Uber can only drive you sort of within a five-mile radius because it doesn't know the roads any further. Oh, really? Even, well, I, uh, no, I'm saying well, even if that were the case, that would, that would still I be... I thought that was an actual thing about no, the no, no. place because I... No, I think, <laughs> I, th- I, think, I think that would be a real boon oh. to people. Um, so... So I look forward to it, but I uh, also recognise it's it's proving a lot harder than some people thought. So here's to the future. Yeah. <laughs> do, you, do you think there's a, there's, there's a line as a hem, uh, as a society where we'll have to get to that we'll have to really analyse? And what I'm, I'll try and explain what I mean by this is so we we're talking here and we're, we're talking about a few different the, be, the benefits, like you said, auto, automated cars will uh, de- decrease the amount of deaths on the road. But as a society, we seem to be just sort of. I'm, what I'm trying to get to is that when does the point become where we go too far? Because what I'm saying is, is like it's hard, really hard to explain this point. But say as a as a site, yes, we are, we have all these things that's getting automated and things like that. But we we already know that as a human race, we never stop in our technolo- technological capabilities of designing things. Do you are you do you think there's a point in society where we have to get to? We have to recognise that maybe this is a this is a point where we we need to steer at or is it just going to continue to school uh, maybe in a direction that's not good for us? Well, um, 
I just think uh, well, I, th- I think this is that. I think this is coming back <laughs> to the discussion we had earlier on on the sort of ethical consequences of of, of, of various modes of progress. But I don't think human progress will ever come to a halt. Um, but of course, we can we can make progress in a, a number of different directions. Yeah, it's a good we, point. And we can choose which directions to go in. You know, so I I, I wouldn't I wouldn't like to see a halt in progress towards you know discovering ways to, to handle diseases for instance i mean i think um, anything we can do in medical research that that uh, alleviates suffering um, we should continue with um, in terms of automating the world well i think we're already seeing some of the problems um of of, of having um too much mechanical transport around, right? Yeah. Um, is that is that humans uh, uh, really need significant exercise on a daily basis right? uh, to, to stay alive, uh, to stay healthy? Um, and the, you know the ten thousand pace walking yeah. target is uh, is fairly well established as the kind of level that um, is desirable if we're going to stay healthy. And actually, relatively few people do that, right? Yeah. So most of us. Are you know getting in our cars or hopping onto public transport um, and not moving ourselves around? So I think I think that's one risk mm. of, of of too much access to machine support. I mean, it's, it's slightly different from the automation question, yeah. uh, but I think it's related. That uh, you know, ultimately we all need to get out and walk, yeah, um, definitely, or pedal our bikes. Or I just keep questioning. You had look as a society, we'll get to a point where we let technology do everything for us and then we get to a point where we actually regret it. Like, like I know it sounds crazy example. I do agree with automated cars, but I still think there's a part of the of the, of the the human mind where, I mean, I think this is probably in terms of evolution. If you were to ask the caveman, would you want a mobile phone? They'd probably say no. So it's probably the same for us, really. We can't really comprehend that point of, of what's going to become of technology, really. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, Arthur C. Clarke was... Said that you know, advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic yeah. um, to to people who don't understand it, and, yeah. and certainly, well, you you can see this. Uh, you know, uh, I'm old enough to remember the first series of Star Trek yeah. in the 1960s, where Captain James T. Kirk, you know, had the, had this communicator, which already by the 90s was looking old-fashioned, and this was supposed to still be a couple of hundred years in the future, yeah. uh, because mobile phones had, had advanced so quickly that they'd overtaken science fiction, in in a sense. And it's crazy how it did that. So Star Trek had to completely reinvent its communication system. Uh, <laughs> Beam me up, Scotty. <laughs> well, uh, the, the, the travel system is another one. Of course, they, you know why they did that. Why did they do that? Because it's cheap. <laughs> in terms of making a movie you know yeah. having little shuttles that physically move people around down to the ground and so on you know it's quite expensive to build the models and make the films and all that whereas if you transport them all you need is a few special effects and they appear where you yeah. want them it's very cheap now that would be a program worth investing in teleportation there yeah and star star, <laughs> star trek of, of course was built on a very tight budget originally so they did have to think about how they could get all these effects very cheaply yeah, um right. And of course, you know, teleportation, quantum teleportation has been demonstrated. Um, oh, really? <laughs> I never knew that, did you? Oh, yeah, yeah, no. It's, uh, so, teleportation is not clearly impossible, but teleporting a whole human 
is is quite tricky uh, b- b- slightly related to stuff we discussed earlier because basically what you have to do is is it really you, you that ha- well that's that's the good question yeah. you have to you have to scan the individual sort of atom by atom mm. and then send the information across to the receiving end and then reconstruct atom by atom at the far end and the question is if i take you apart atom by atom and then reassemble you um obviously using new atoms because i've not sent your atoms across i've used new atoms over there to assemble and i exact copy um, is that really you um, and would you know and which of you would know mm. <laughs> that, that's, it is a scary thought that actually question that is that really you and the other side of whatever happens and you come out the other side is that really your is that really you because it could just be that, a co- complete yeah. copy of yourself depends exactly what you call as a, um, what do you class as you if you class a, yeah, every yeah. single yeah. bit of your physical particle right now is you then what gets transferred over is not you but if if your consciousness gets transferred over, then Whatever some could thing. argue well, is that it, is you. So, so uh, yeah, okay, so we're, we're definitely getting there. We are the, sci-fi now. This is realms of <laughs> philosophy here, but I mean, you know, the point is that you know, you in a year's time, you'll have almost no atoms in common with you now. Right. Mm-hmm. So every every atom in your body will have been replaced, mm. but you still have same, a structure and same I blood cells. Every single blood cell. Replaced in seven years. That's ago. right. Yeah. So, so none of the matter that makes up you now will make up you in a year's time. But the thing that remains is actually the information, which is you, mm. which is the you know the memories and, and, and you know physically you'll be very similar, um, you know physically recognisable. But but so so what you know what are we? We're a kind of well the expression I came up with is we're an information standing wave on a stream of batter I like that phrase yeah and, and it's you know it captures something of, of the essence that you know we, we like that. keep replacing ourselves but somehow the the information structure is retained even though all the matter mm. is being have you questioned why through. it does that hmm? why it retains that information have you questioned that well uh, and does it I mean it, it's uh, yeah, it does because because the memories are, you know, your se- your sense of self is very much built on your memories, mm-hmm. and, and they're reasonably persistent. They're not anything like totally reliable, but they're reasonably persistent. Yeah. And uh, but anyway, as I say, this is definitely getting into the realms of philosophy. I think that's a really. Should we leave it there? Yeah, I think it's a really cool, good, cool spot. Really, <laughs> thank you. For that. Really great podcast. <laughs> really great. Thank you so okay. much for your time. You're welcome, guys. Thank you, thank you so much. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast. That was a really interesting podcast, you must admit. And we're really grateful for Steve giving us his time. We know he's a busy man, building all his brains and things. <laughs> but anyway, thank you so much for listening and tuning in. If you want to support the podcast, you can do that for our Patreon page. We also have a one-off donation option. It really wouldn't mean the world to us. and helps us to keep doing what we're doing. I've just got back from recording a podcast literally last night with uh, quite an interesting guy who is basically traveling the world for three, literally for three, and it's, um, he's a really interesting guy. So I just recorded that last night, had a long drive to Manchester and got back early hours of this morning. We also, at the weekend, are heading down to Oxford and we are doing a podcast with a guy where we're going to talk about the placebo effect, which I've wanted to talk about on this podcast for ages. And we also have another interesting conversation with a guy who is one of the leading experts in the UK on artificial intelligence. And coming up in the in the future, there is many other podcasts coming. So really excited 
of what is up and coming on this podcast. So anyway, we love you all and wherever you are in the world, hope you are having a great day.